0: You know, just breathe in that mountain there. Oh
1: my gosh, it is beautiful out here, Charles. We've got some haze in the background, so you can't really see the mountains too well today. Yeah,
0: if you look out in the distance, you can see some peaks out there. But with that wind rolling off the mountains, it's a new school year breeze, as I like to say. It's a new season of the Pulse, right?
1: It is, and we're kicking it off with one of our own alumni from the University of Maryland, Baltimore, Carey School of Law and her name is Carmen Farmer. Carmen works out here, but she actually spent a fair amount of time in um, in Baltimore studying and doing some interesting things on the Eastern Shore. We'll be hearing about that today.
0: Yeah, and you're probably wondering, where are we? We are in Denver, Colorado right now at the Podcast Movement Conference, and we're here to learn how to improve the podcast for our loyal listeners, our pulse pals, as we like to call them. So uh, we figured, why not do a podcast out here and talk to an alum? We have... UMB alumni everywhere.
1: Yeah, and it was kind of hard to narrow it down. We we have some dentists out here who we considered, but Carmen is our go-to person for the day. She's a senior conservation project manager for the Northern Front Range and Lower South Platte Basin for Colorado Open Lands. And that's a nonprofit. They're dedicated to protecting land and water in Colorado. And she's going to give us a lot more specifics about what that means.
0: That's exciting. And, and on top of all of that, she's an Olympian. And as they say, once an Olympian, always an Olympian. And representing uh, Team USA Rugby in the Rio Olympics. So that's going to be fun to talk about, too. Yep. Well, let's bring her on. Yes. Let's get the uh, show on the road for the UMB Pulse. You're listening to the heartbeat of the University of Maryland, Baltimore. The UMB Pulse. Carmen, uh, thank you for joining us here in Colorado.
1: Yeah. You said you hit a little bit of traffic, so it was a little a little bit of a drive, but not too bad?
2: No, not too bad at all. Um, thanks for having me. Um, welcome to Colorado. You guys have a wonderful view here, obviously, and uh, hopefully you're getting to experience a little bit of it.
0: Absolutely.
1: Yeah. You must enjoy living out here. How long have you been in Colorado? I've been here seven years. Seven years. And you came out here for work, right?
2: I did. Yeah. Um, initially to, to work with Colorado Open Lands. Um, I'd been coming out here, though, to train for rugby. And we probably talk about that a little bit more in a bit. Yep. But um yeah, I love it. It's home now. The mountains, every weekend I'm out and about camping, hiking, climbing, skiing in the winter. So yeah.
1: But Charles, she's a hard lady to catch up with. Just <laughs> <laughs> got back from Africa, right? Yeah, I did. I
2: did a two week trip to South Africa to go uh volunteer at a rhino sanctuary. And uh so yeah I, I stayed pretty busy.
1: <laughs> That's amazing. Tell us a little bit about your trajectory educationally. So we'll dive into work in a couple minutes, but how? What did you start out studying? How did you wind up at UMB? And how did that ultimately get you out here?
2: Yeah, uh, I grew up in Richmond, Virginia. Okay. Uh, I went to undergrad at Virginia Tech where I studied urban planning um, and then ended up going to law school at University of Maryland in Baltimore uh, and uh, had sort of an environmental uh, lean there and, and studied land use planning and, and things of that nature. Um, subsequently to that, I uh, clerked in federal district court in Greenbelt um, and uh, and then took a job with a, um, a land use law firm on the eastern shore of Maryland and lived in Maryland for
0: quite a while. So pretty special place for me. Let's learn about the nonprofit you work for. Uh, what is Colorado Open Lands and why is it important to the state?
2: Yeah, Colorado Open Lands is a statewide land trust. Um, as you mentioned, we're a nonprofit and our mission is essentially to protect open spaces, uh, farmland, uh ranch land uh, in Colorado, we've protected nearly seven hundred thousand acres. Um, and the reason we do that is because we're growing. I mean, it, it, you're you've got this perfect backdrop because we have sprawling subdivision houses out here on the prairie. We're about fifteen miles uh, east of of Denver um, in a, a growing metro area. And uh, like me, there's many of us that have moved out here because we enjoy the access to the mountains. Um unfortunately, you know we're we're growing at an exponential pace and eating up some of our best farm ground. So our best habitat for the other species that coexist with us out here and um, our wonderful views um, and, uh, you know, our public recreational opportunities. We have a lot of public land out here, but at the pace that we're growing, we're loving it to death. If you go to Rocky Mountain National Park, they get four million visitors a year. Um, you've got to get a timed entry pass to get into there now. Um, and so we're just crawling all over those o- open lands we have out here. And so part of our mission is to try to, to find those last best places that we can protect, um, that both provide places for us to grow food, places for us to recreate, and then places for rest for the wildlife and other species that, as I mentioned, are out here with us.
0: It it is surprising to see the sprawl here. Uh, It's a nicely dense city. And then as right behind us, you might be able to see newly constructed or under construction homes and townhomes. And then some of those homes are approaching uh you know park land on, on the border like the Rocky Mountain National Arsenal. Like you drive out and then bam, there's a new development right there. So but let's let's talk about what the land actually covers it and, and your regions. You're the senior project manager for the Northern Front Range and the and the lower South Platte basin for Colorado open lands. Paint the scene for us and the state in relation to where we're at here in Denver
2: we're in that that metro area right now. So the South Platte River runs through Denver, um starts headwaters are up in the mountains in a place called South Park. Um, not to be confused with the TV show. Right. Although um, the, the creators are from this area. Um, and there's an interesting nexus there. Um, it flows all the way out to the Nebraska border. So I kind of cover this entire area. Um, and this is the fastest growing part of Colorado. You know, for a while in Denver, we had 10,000 people a month moving to Denver. That's we, crazy. we have a housing shortage here. Um, and so that's why you're seeing all of this new construction. Um, we just can't keep up with the, the pace of people moving here. <laughs> you're talking about traffic earlier, that's part of it too. You know, all the infrastructure that goes along with it. And so my job is to go out and meet with landowners, some of these private folks that are being approached by development, and talk to them about conserving that land, protecting that land. And the way we do that is through a legal uh, tool called a conservation easement. And that's where my law background comes into play. I structure those deals. I work with the landowners. There's some pretty sophisticated tax law that goes into it because there are um, really uh, robust tax benefits, both on a federal level and then on a state level, um, that those landowners can avail themselves of if they protect that land. Um, now, we do this in the context of all this growth. It's not like we just want to go out and prevent growth. That's not the idea. It, the idea is to try to think about those communities, how they can grow, and how they can protect the, the places that are most important to them, whether that's a, a riparian area that provides a lot of biodiversity.
0: We <laughs> have a little uh, uh, lawn mowing action in the background. Yeah,
2: yeah. On this uh, nice Kentucky bluegrass out here that's being irrigated with senior water rights. Awkward thing. Yeah. Oh.
0: Yeah, nicely done. Oh, yeah. Very
1: diplomatic. Yeah. <laughs> you
0: know? so, we'll, we'll leave part of that in, but but you were, um, just reset after our, our little uh, long-going calls for a second, you were, you were talking about uh, the conservation easements and, and what that allows um, people to do.
2: Yeah, and so we, we use conservation easements to incentivize um, uh, the protection of land and water rights. Water rights are a whole other big thing out here. We've only got so much water. You've probably heard about the Colorado River on the other side, on the western slope um facing challenges and and that's because we've overappropriated those water rights and a lot of those water rights are on um irrigated agricultural farms out here um you know contrasted to Maryland where we get 50 to 55 inches of rain a year out here we're getting more like 12 to 14 inches of rain mm-hmm. so you can't grow much without water rights um however we've got you know competing interests when we build developments we need water rights for the taps for the mm-hmm. irrigated grass that's at this hotel all those things and so there's this tremendous pressure on land and water out here that we're facing right now as we grow. And so what what my job is to sit down and think about with the communities, whether it's Denver or Boulder or Fort Collins or any of the front range communities in in this basin, how you can grow and protect those areas that you want to protect. Do you need more public recreational space that people can walk to? That's a big, uh, you know, access is a big issue out here. Not everybody has a car or can afford to go pay $30 to go into Rocky Mountain National Park. And so we think about places that we protect as pocket parks or places that are in underserved communities where they historically haven't had access to green spaces. Think about COVID, when that went down, everyone went outside. We couldn't go to our traditional places to to do the things we did. And so we all went outside and that was from a mental health perspective, so important. Um, A lot of these communities don't have access to that. Um, And so when we talk about a community and what they wanna protect, maybe it's their rural economy, so they wanna protect the farm ground around it. Maybe it's just their growing population um, and they wanna be able to provide those places for people to just go walk. Or maybe there's a particular species that's endangered in that area. And they're like, look, this is the last stretch of this creek where this cutthroat trout lives. We need to make sure that we protect that area. And so we can build a conservation easement based upon different outcomes. And so that's what we do. It's community-based planning, essentially. Like I mentioned, I had studied urban planning. This was a big thing. Smart growth came out of Maryland. Um, And we we did the same thing on the eastern shore where we were trying to protect lands over there um, as as Maryland was growing, right? I mean, you guys are very familiar with that. Yes. Um, And so that's kind of what we're doing here. Um, it feels like a, a you're swimming upstream in many ways, mm-hmm. but I like to think that we're putting a little bit of a dent in the universe. And it's not just Colorado. I mean, my organization is, you know, we work within the corners of Colorado, but we're on the Hill in D.C. right now working on the farm bill and negotiating with our senators um, and trying to work on farmland protection funding that will not just come to Colorado, but go across the country. Wow. And so it's it's kind of fun that, you know, even though you know I work within the four corners of Colorado, we're doing policy work that stretches across the country and, and and actually as a model, you know, our state tax credit here, which is transferable, um, which is a big deal. It means that a landowner does conservation easement, gets a tax credit. They might not have a lot of income tax from a Colorado perspective. They can sell it to Amazon or sell oh it to Hewlett Packard. And so there's only five states that do that. And Colorado was one of the first. And so there are a lot of innovative things that come out of Colorado mm-hmm. that get taken by other states and applied in the land conservation space. And so it's kind of exciting that, you know, even though we work within, you know, the state, we, some of the policies and things that we do kind of have far-reaching effects.
0: That's good to hear. This is my second time uh, in, in Denver. And, and the first time coming out here, I was surprised going uh, up to Boulder, just the lengthy walking and exercise trails that, that yeah. run along the highway and just seeing everybody out there. But the other thing that surprised me was about the, the water challenges when someone told me it's like, this is basically a desert state. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'm like, I wouldn't have guessed that because yeah. you have a lot of grass and then you have all these, you know, snow for, from skiing, but like you're tapped out. And, and to that point on, on the other side of, of the mountains, um, there are active wildfires and, and you're no stranger to wildfires here. And to that end, I think wildfires right now are, are in the front of a lot of people's mind because of uh, Maui. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. I know you're, you're, you're focused on land policy and, and conservation, but I'm wondering if anything that's ha- have happened out there and kind of like the post-mortem of, of what caused those fires, if that's going through the, those conversations are going through your organization at all about the utility company and people being prepared with emergency sirens and, um, you know, access to, getting water, because there's a, uh, issue about people not providing water access to fight the fires out there. So I I don't know if any of those things are all of a sudden now top of mind.
2: Yeah, I mean it. it it's all well, one. You you sort of you feel for those people out there. I mean you don't think about something like that happening in in a place like like Maui. Um, it's it's always top of mind here. You all came at a pretty good time. Usually this time of year there's some fire going on and it might not be in Colorado. It might be two states over. Um, you know, in 2020, we, uh, we had fires that, you know, in Denver that were 200 miles away where you'd go outside and there'd be ash on your car oh, wow. um, because it blew, blows in. And, and so air quality is a massive issue. In the mountains, um, forest treatment is an issue in terms of, you know, we have a lot of mountain communities that, you know, that, that we, we've got 100 years of fire suppression. And so what that's done ecologically is created this tapestry or this, this, this carpet of just forest monoculture trees a lot of Douglas fir essentially, not to get in the weeds here, but there, there's a lot of fire danger and climate change and climate building and climate resiliency, whether that's access to water or thinning those forests or starting to manage those forests in a way that they were, you know, historically for tens of thousands of years um, managed with, you know, out suppression. So that's fires that were started by lightning or fires that were started by First Nations. You know, we're on the ancestral lands of the Cheyenne, the Ute and Arapaho right now. And they would start fires. Um, that was part of the landscape and, and part of clearing out meadows and bringing in uh, species, game species and things like that. And so, you know, we created this system here um, where, you know, we are susceptible to fire and it, it's it's top of mind for a lot of folks. Um, and then you, you combine that with, you know, we've been in a 20 year drought until this past year. We had the biggest snowpack we've had in 20 years and then we had the wettest spring we've had. Um, but other than that, you know, we, we've been living consistently with drought out here. And, and so we're constantly thinking about fire and thinking about utilizing resources and having the emergency systems in place and, and also just managing for fire. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of communities, Boulder included, they had a fire on New Year's Eve a couple of years ago. It was crazy. Oh. Um, you think about the middle of the winter, then you're going to have this fire. But that's what we, we live with. And so a lot of it's the land management techniques. So getting out here, grazing grasslands, thinning forests so that they, they, they look a little bit more like they historically did. Um, having a little bit of a um, more diverse forest system, not just one set of trees that are the same age, um, and so this is getting a little into the weeds, <laughs> but. but yeah, it's always um, top of mind for us. I think you guys got a taste of it earlier this year with the fires that came down. You saw the apocalyptic right. photos in New York City.
1: Yeah, that's, um,
2: that's every summer here, not to that extent, but you know, somewhere along that spectrum, and so that's part of living in the Mountain West. And yeah, it was eye opening when I came out here because you think about all the rain we get and the water, water um, in the Chesapeake Bay area and It's just very different. And uh, it's going to continue to be an issue as we have, you know, climate change and drier climate and these these crazy storms and things like
1: that. Well, you just mentioned the Chesapeake Bay. So let's take it back to Maryland for a minute. Okay. You, um, you were a land use attorney on the Eastern Shore for a bit, right? Yeah. And was that to help farmers and the produce that's growing there? Or how did that it, work? It was
2: a mix. You know, I was, okay. I was a young attorney coming out of law school um, and worked for small firms, like five attorneys, um, a junior associate. So you kind of get handed everything. Okay. It was, it was a great way to learn. I, you know, yes, sometimes we were working with farmers that were and we were representing them and they were interested in protecting their land. Other times I'd have a landowner that was, you know, had this big second home property on a, you know, river on the bay. And they were like, hey, I'd like to build a 10,000 square foot house, you know, in the critical area as close to the water as possible. And I want to have a helipad so I can like get to my office in Baltimore. Uh, And so it was mixed, you know, you you kind of take whatever you can get. And, um, you know, it was was a fun learning experience. and, And I did that for about five years. I'd started to interface with the land trust community and that's what really spoke to me and and that's where I you know kind of made the conscious decision, okay, like I've cut my teeth in private practice, um but I wanna do work that's a little bit more meaningful to me and so then i sh- i i I went over to the Eastern Shore Land Conservancy, which is another nonprofit similar to Colorado open lands, but focused on the east the six counties on the eastern shore um that we worked with in the upper watershed and uh loved it um it, it was like okay this is this is what I need to do with with my life and there's also a little more work-life balance there, so you could go recreate. You know, right. there it was. You know, weekends looked a little bit more like going out on the boat. Right. Um,
1: now you're up in the mountains yeah, there. yeah.
2: So a little bit of a contrast, but um, just being outside.
1: Yeah. Did um? Would you? Is there anything in particular about attending the University of Maryland Carey School of Law that that you feel really contributed to your ability to? grow in those areas and become involved?
2: I mean, absolutely. The environmental law program they have there, it's, it's renowned. And, um, you know, Professor uh, Bob Percival was one of my influential professors there. And um, having the access to environmental groups uh, like the Chesapeake Bay Foundation and just right in your backyard. I mean, they're based in Annapolis. You know, we're in Baltimore. Um, I think there's an also interesting intersection between, the, you know, the urban planning departments at the University of Maryland College Park um, where smart the, the term smart growth or the concept came out of, um, and so there were a lot of synergies there that I really appreciated. And then of course DC is right down the road, so in terms of policy and having access to that um, from a federal standpoint, um, yeah, it was it was a wonderful place to go to school. And I got there right when the new law school was built, oh, so nice. you know we we were in this you know state of the art <laughs> building that is just beautifully designed from an architectural standpoint, but then also just an inspiring place to to learn. Um, and, you know, I lived two blocks away, you know, in the shadow of Cannon Yards. And it was right. it was fun. You know, I was a kid that came from rural Virginia. And this was my first time living in a city. I now live downtown Denver in a little condo. And um, so it was it was in terms of me, like from a, a personal growth perspective, but also professionally, like it was it was a wonderful place to be.
1: That's great. That's
0: fantastic. I think you you touched on this a little bit earlier, but how is managing <laughs> land farming and other resources in Colorado different than in Maryland? I mean, obviously, geo geographically it's very different.
2: Yeah, I think the biggest one is just the water component. You know, you can you can grow corn in in Maryland without irrigating it. You know, you can you, you get enough rainfall or for other crops like that. And so out here if you really want to have a productive agricultural operation, you've got to have irrigation water. And the irrigation water is in some cases more expensive than the actual land. Oh, wow. Um and so uh that, that's part of and there's a whole history of, of the riparian doctrine versus the prior appropriation doctrine out here, which is very different than what we do on the East Coast. At the East Coast, you have a creek that runs through your property. You can access that water. Here, you've got to go file in court to get a water right. And there's a prior appropriation doctrine. So first person to put it, you know, if you have an 1862 water right, that's superior to a 1950 water right. And so if there's not enough water in the river, your junior water right, your 1950 water right or whatever, you might not be able to draw upon that water. And Hmm. so there's this complicated system that we've done out here in the West, in Colorado, and in, in other states in the Mountain West, um, where, you know, there's, there's a saying out here that, that whiskey's for drinking and water's for fighting. (laughs) Um, and, uh, that's just because there were, you know, in the the 1870s and stuff. You seemed awfully
1: happy this morning.
2: (laughs) (laughs) A little whiskey in my cup? No. (laughs) Um, uh, yeah, I mean, there, there were a lot of fights over water and there still are in court, um, because it's, it's a resource that we have over-appropriated. We don't have enough, but it unlocks everything here. I mean, we are in a high altitude desert here at, a little over 5,000 feet here at Denver in elevation. They call it the mile-high city for a reason. Mm-hmm. Right, um, It's hard to grow things out here. But yet we have one of the biggest rural economies in, this, in the country. Um, Weld County, just north of here a little bit, is a top 10 producing county in in the entire country. And so they are competing with places like Cal- Southern California, where you have a much longer growing season. Um, and so you can grow a lot more crops. And yet we're able to export. I mean, we export to China. We export to... Um, The EU, I mean, it's a major part of the economy out here. Everybody talks about like the ski economy or like we have a growing tech economy and other things like that. But um, one of our biggest, um, from a GDP perspective, um, economies out here is the agricultural economy. Um, And so, you know, contrasting that back east, it's the water. You know, we wouldn't have that economy if we didn't have the infrastructure in place to store water, to divert water, the ditches and all those kind of things out here. Um, to put it to use. I mean, we wouldn't have this hotel here without the water. Right?
1: So. Do you do anything like Florida with gray water? We do. Water? Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. That's become a big thing here. Water efficiency is conservation. Um, we're starting to see communities pay people to take, you know, Kentucky bluegrass out and to do zero escaping and things of that nature. Um, it's just part of part of the equation in terms of how we can make that water go a little bit farther. We reuse water multiple times. So there's a there's a, a saying here that in Denver, when you flush your toilet, it gets used seven times before it hits the border <laughs> in Nebraska. <laughs> And that there's some truth to that because it goes back into the river system. It gets picked up by an irrigator. They put it on their farm. Their crop might consume some of it, but some of it gets, you know, return flows back into the river system or the aquifer. And so it gets picked up multiple
0: times. It seems like uh, water rights is almost as uh, great as uh, rights for gold and prospecting for mining.
2: Yeah, it's getting to that point. Every once in a while you hear about, um, you know, efforts to, oh, we'll pipe water from the Mississippi or, well, yeah. Just because it gets to a, a price point where it's so expensive to acquire water rights because there's only so many of them. And it's a commodity, right? Like yeah. um and and honestly, I wish in law school I'd had access to studying water law. I mean, it was it was uh, kind of thrown into the deep end when I came out here because I didn't have any experience in that. And I was right. like, Oh wow, I need to pick this up quickly. That and the mineral development, um, you know, that's something we haven't touched upon here And a part of what we do is trying to figure out because there's a lot of oil and gas development out here. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, when if you head north a little bit, you'll see wells everywhere and they're constantly still drilling and there's a fair bit of fracking going on. And we're trying to figure out how we come to terms with that in, in, in the case of protecting land and coexisting with, with those natural resource extraction activities. Um, yeah. I mean, this place was settled because of gold and silver mining. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's always a history of some sort of extraction, whether it's that or oil and gas or timber or, you know, and so trying to figure out how all those multiple different users use the water and the the, the, the land is, you know, it's an interesting place to, to be. <laughs>
0: Absolutely.
1: Well, Charles alluded to in the beginning, there's another, a whole other side to you. We we know you're an outdoorsy <laughs> kind of person. Um, I think it's really interesting how the the Rockies and the Plains intersect here. Tell us how your life intersects with with athletics and specifically rugby
2: yeah I um well I I grew up uh playing sports um basketball I went to school in undergrad and played softball on a scholarship um and so that was always kind of part of my life um and then I went to law school and it was kind of like all focused on school um and then after that career and so there's a 10-year period where I didn't really have any sort of athletic sport component to life um and then um and I turned 30. I went on a trip with actually a couple of other University of Maryland grads, uh, a friend of mine, Brianna Strapoli. She's listening. Um, she organized this trip to, to Africa, to Tanzania, um, to climb Kilimanjaro. And um, while we were up there, it was kind of an epiphany. This was also the time where I was transitioning from private practice to uh, the land field, the nonprofit sector. Um, I mentioned I ran into someone that was on that trip that was from Australia, and they mentioned this rugby thing. And I was like, what rugby? I never really rugby heard of rugby. Heard of- yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's pretty underground here. Um, and so I was, she was like, you'd probably be pretty good at it. And I was like, oh, I'm kind of trying to like reincorporate some level of sport in my life. I'm 30. Like if I'm going to do that, this is the last chance I'll probably have to do that. So I got home, looked it up. There's a club in Annapolis, Severn River Rugby, um, a women's club and a men's club. And, and I'm like, these adults do this? Like there's an adult league. Oh, for yeah. <laughs> um, and so I, I showed up to a practice and was like, whoa, this is this is cool. This is different. Um, and uh, it, it kind of escalated into this whole thing. Like I played a season with them. We went to nationals. There's a national championship every year. uh, And there were USA scouts there. And they approached me afterwards after we had just actually lost a national championship game. And so, uh, you know, we're all having beers and just sort of like trying to relax. He's like, what do you think about your rugby career? I'm like, what? What's a
1: rugby career? (laughs) I have a career. career. I've had a long time to
2: build. Um, And so I started going to these USA camps. Um, Rugby was reintroduced into the Olympics in 2016. Um, And it it was sort of like, wow, this this could be a thing, and and um, it ended up really becoming a thing. My parents laughed; they were like, "This is a cute little hobby you have."
1: <laughs> <laughs> like, is
2: this like a midlife crisis thing? <laughs> um, and no, so I started going to camps uh, actually out here in Colorado initially, um, and then got really serious about it and had to move to San Diego. We have an Olympic training center outside of San Diego in Chula Vista, and so two years before the Olympics. I, I talked to, you know, I was working at the Eastern Land Conservancy at the time. I was like, hey, guys, I have this opportunity. Would you allow me to work part time and sort of train out there? And so moved out there. I'd get up at like five o'clock to take, you know, eight o'clock a.m. meetings in, in, in Maryland, um, work in the morning, go train all day, come home, work. And um, but it was one of those things. I It was it was an interesting moment in life where you sort of ask yourself, OK, this is going to be really tough, um, both professionally, mentally, physically at that stage in your life. Um, but would you regret it? And, and that was the point. It was like, I, I had an outside chance. Like, I was not like, I, I got invited out. They were like, we're not going to pay you yet. We're not quite sure. Um, and because uh, it, it is professional now. Um, but I was, it was like, I'm going to take a chance. I can do it for two years. And it somehow worked out. I ended up getting picked in 2016 to go to Rio, um, which was a, another amazing experience, something I never would have thought would happen. Um, and yeah, so there's some, I mean, we're seven years removed from that now. Um, but it's, it's kind of interesting to look back on sometimes I'm like, did that really happen? Like, it, yeah. And I right. was, you know, I was an older athlete. I was 35 at the time. Um, I remember distinctly in the athlete village one time I got on the elevator cause you're, you know, we have a USA building. It's hundreds of us that are there. I mean, we're the largest contingent that goes. And, um, you know, I got on the elevator and these these coaches were like, what, what sport do you coach?
1: Was like, <laughs> Thanks, bud. I was but like, yeah. I'm actually here to
2: compete. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so the average age is like, yeah, there's a bunch of like 22-year-olds like, running around. Like, right. this, this is all they do. They just train. Right. Uh, but it gave me this really interesting perspective because, you know, I have my professional life and it's such a mental game in terms of like getting to that point, like competing every once every four years, right? Like, and, and just right. like the, you know, we had sports psychologists and folks that helped us Think about that and deal with the pressure and all that stuff, but I was kind of like, this is just icing on top of the cake. Like I, I had no expectation to be here initially. Like, yeah. um, and so it gave me this sort of nice little armor where I was like, oh, I don't care. Like I've got my day job. I'm going back to you. like <laughs> I love what I do. Like my passion is in my work. This is another part, another dimension of my life that's wonderful. But so it was, a, it was an interesting place to be. And um, yeah.
1: So yeah, that, that's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. That's yeah. really wonderful. And rugby is such a great sport. You learn so many things from it self resiliency and just being strong and enduring absolutely and it's a very uh open inclusive space um you know and and,
2: and it's always been that way come as you are all kinds of body types um it doesn't mm-hmm. you know where you're from what your skill level is um how you identify whatever i mean we we, we try to be pretty open and, and it's also it's it's a worldwide sport it's not huge here it's growing right. yeah. but um you know i've been all over the world new zealand um England Fiji um just to play and and you know it's it's a worldwide community and it's um the camaraderie that that goes into it as well you know we we smash into each other on the right. pitch <laughs> and then afterwards you know you host the other team you 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 do a dinner you have drinks and so it was you know it was very different than some of the other sports that I played um and um I really appreciate that about it and have friends all over the world because of that that's amazing
0: You mentioned that it- it's growing and i feel like it's to the point now especially in the last like, year or so where it's going beyond that olympic cycle and you're seeing more of it especially on the east coast it's getting televised more which is you know huge to, to get that exposure i i was looking up i was like well i wonder if there's any teams around here it's like wow you you not only have a team you have a women's team the colorado gray wolves who are three-time champions yeah
2: i yeah. played on that team Really? <laughs> <laughs> oh,
1: yeah
2: um yeah, yeah, it is, and it's. I think the biggest thing that's starting to happen is you're seeing uh, varsity programs in colleges, and that for the longest time it was a it was a club sport, um, it, and so you didn't have scholarship opportunities, um, you didn't have uh, the funding that was going into it like other traditional NCAA sports, um, and so that's going to be the, the 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 point that really pivots. it, I think you know, like it's still like we're we're competitive on the world stage um, to a certain extent in the Olympics. We took fifth place. We didn't meddle, unfortunately, um, but it's 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 going to take, I think, that investment both at the youth level, but it, really in my mind at the NCAA level, because that legitimizes it from a parent's perspective. Mm-hmm. So like if if I'm a 16 year old kid and I'm like, hey, mom, I want to go to college and play a sport, you know, they're probably going to like be more interested if it's a sport like soccer or something where you can get a scholarship as opposed to a more obscure sport. And so I think that'll really be the trigger point where we'll start to see it grow tremendously. Uh, in the next few years, yeah.
0: there is a DC team, Old Glory. Yeah, so people can see it back home in Virginia and Leesburg, and and I saw that uh, some Australian teams are actually coming over to play some games in Las Vegas to get more exposure okay. too. So, you know, they're they're all in to to grow the sport. And now we have the you know Olympics returning to Paris. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 2024 next year. So are you going to try to keep up with Team USA or even think about flying out there to, to watch?
2: Yeah, definitely keep up. I still know a few of the folks on both the men's and the women's teams and they both have qualified, which is amazing. Um, I don't know if I'll make it out. I went to New Zealand to watch the Rugby World Cup last year, which was quite nice. an experience because we also have a world, you know, much like the Soccer World mm-hmm. Cup, the Women's Soccer World Cup that just went on. Um, we do the same thing too with rugby. Um, we'll see. I don't know, you know. Um, it's it's going to an Olympics as a spectator is pretty special too. After we were finished playing, I got to stick around and just go see different events. Oh, that's fun. And I mean, it's it's just it's it's such an interesting event. I mean, the 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 world's eyes are literally on it. And it's not just a niche sport, it's all the different sports, right? Mm-hmm. right. Um, and so it's it's pretty, pretty cool to see all these different countries convene. It, it, and even as an athlete, you know, we all have one dining hall center like center in seeing all the different countries come together. And and we're all literally breaking bread in the same room and the different countries that, you know, sometimes from a political perspective, we're not always getting along. But from an athlete's perspective, like it, we connect on that. We're like, oh, you went through the same struggles I went through to right. get here. Yeah. And you're a person just like me. And yeah. so there is something beautiful. There's a lot of things that are wrong with the Olympics in yeah. terms of infrastructure and other things like that. But um, there are a lot of really nice, beautiful things about it too that I think you know. It, sure. I, I get excited when it comes around every
0: four Maybe years. Maybe
1: we should put a few of the politicians in a rugby game, and then we'll see what they really, really got. It. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I
0: was gonna say it's probably nice uh, to have those experiences in the in the dining hall because I'm sure you you might have been all struck. I I don't know if there was any other Olympian athlete that you're like. Oh, oh uh, Michael Phelps is that oh, you yeah, yeah like that. We got, a pho- <laughs> we
2: got a photo with Michael Phelps and I was like, Hey, I live in Maryland. Right. Like, he was like apart. <laughs> like, um, yeah. I mean, there's actually before the opening ceremonies, there's a big get together. It's almost like a um meet and greet between all the athletes. And so everyone's getting selfies like with Serena Williams and um yeah, and we 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 all, you know, we saw I saw Michael and I was like, guys, we gotta go get a photo with him. Um he,
1: basically my next door neighbor. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, exactly. He's
0: like, Who's this girl?
2: Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it, it is. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty otherworldly when you start to see some of those other athletes there. And, um, it's, you know, it, most of us are staying in the same building. Some of the teams, like the the women's soccer team, they're rock stars. They're staying at some like five-star resort. <laughs> we didn't run into them actually until we went to, we got invited to the White House afterwards. And so we ran into some of the, those players and even, you know, us as, as rugby players, we were like, Oh my God, can I get a photo with you? I guess. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's, That's very
2: totally starstruck, but yeah, um, yeah it's it, it's 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 such an interesting experience.
1: Well, Carmen, thanks for being here today, taking time out of your busy schedule, and just sharing some information about your trajectory and how you got where you are. But it's really exciting to hear the personal part mixed in, so we appreciate you sharing that. And thanks for joining the Pulse. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank
0: you. <laughs> The UMB Pulse with Charles Chalet and Dana Rampola is a UMB Office of Communications and Public Affairs production. Edited by Charles Chalet, marketing by Dana Rampola.